0: Section six of the History of Prostitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Prostitution by William Sanger. Section six, chapter four, Rome. Part two. Habits and Manners of Prostitutes. A grand distinction between Roman and Greek prostitution lies in the manner in which commerce with prostitutes was viewed in the two communities at athens there was nothing disgraceful in frequenting the dictarion or keeping an at rome on the contrary a married man who visited a house of ill fame was an adulter and liable to the penalties of adultery an habitual frequenter of such places was a moicus or both of which were terms of scathing reproach. When Cicero wishes to overwhelm Catiline, he says his followers are scortatores. Until the lowest age of Roman degradation, moreover, no man of any character entered a house of ill fame without hiding his face with the skirt of his dress. Even Caligula and Heliogabalus concealed their faces when they visited the women of the town. The law, prescribed with care the dress of roman prostitutes on the principle that they were to be distinguished in all things from honest women thus they were not allowed to wear the chaste stola which concealed the form or the vita or fillet with which roman ladies bound their hair or to wear shoes soccus or jewels or purple robes these were the insignia of virtue prostitutes wore the toga like men. Their hair, dyed yellow or red, were filled with golden spangles, was dressed in some Asiatic fashion. They wore sandals with gilt thongs tying over the instep, and their dress was directed to be of flowered material. In practice, however, these rules were not strictly observed. Courtesans wore jewels and purple robes, And not a few boldly concealed their profligacy under the stola. Others, seeking rather to avoid than to court misapprehension as to their calling, wore the green toga proudly, and over it the sort of jacket called amiculum, which, like the white sheet of baronial times, was the badge of adultery. Others, again, preferred the silk and gauze dresses of the East, sericae vestis, which, according to the expression of a classical writer, seemed invented to exhibit more conspicuously what they were intended to hide. Robes of Tyre were likewise in use, whose texture may be inferred from the name of textile vapour, ventus textilis, which they received. The law strictly prohibited the use of vehicles of any kind to courtesans. This also was frequently infringed under several emperors prostitutes were seen in open litters in the most public parts of rome and others in litters which closed with curtains and served the purpose of a bedchamber a law of domitian imposed heavy penalties on a courtesan who was seen in a litter in the Lupaner, of course rules regarding costume were unheeded prostitutes retained their hair black but as to the rest of their person they were governed by their own taste Nudity appears to have been quite common, if not the rule. Petronius describes his hero walking in the street and seeing from thence naked prostitutes at the doors of the Lupinaria. Some cover their busts with golden stuffs, others veal their faces. It has already been mentioned that the rate of remuneration exacted by the prostitutes was fixed by themselves, though apparently announced to the Aedile. It is impossible to form any idea of the average amount of this charge. The lowest classes, as has been mentioned, sold their miserable favors for about two-tenths of a cent. Another large class were satisfied with two cents. The only direct light that is thrown on this branch of the subject flows from an obscure passage in the strange romance entitled Apollonius of Tyre, which is supposed to have been written by a Christian named Symposius, in that work the capture of a virgin named tarsia by a bawd is described the bawd orders a sign or advertisement to be hung out inscribed he who deflowers tarsia shall pay half a pound afterward she shall be at the public service for a gold piece the half pound has been assumed by commentators to mean half a roman pound of silver and to have been worth thirty dollars the gold piece according to the best computation was about equivalent to four dollars. But whether these figures can be regarded as an average admits of doubt, even supposing our estimate of the value of the sums mentioned in the ancient work to be accurate. The allusion to Tarsia suggests some notice of the practice of the Roman bods when they had secured a virgin. It will be found faithfully described in that old English play, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, which is sometimes bound up with Shakespeare's works. When a bod had purchased a virgin as a slave, or when, as sometimes happened under the late emperors, a virgin was handed to him to be prostituted as a punishment for crime, the door of his house was adorned with twigs of laurel. A lamp of unusual size was hung out at night, and a tablet exhibited somewhat similar to the one quoted above, stating that a virgin had been received and enumerating her charms with cruel grossness. When a purchaser had been found and a bargain struck, the unfortunate girl, often a mere child, was surrendered to his brutality, and the wretch issued from the cell afterward to be himself crowned with laurel by the slaves of the establishment, thus far of common prostitutes. Though the Romans had no loose women who could compare in point of standing influence or intellect with the Greek hetaire, their highest class of prostitutes, the famosai or delicatai, were very far above the unfortunate creatures just described. They were not inscribed in the idal's rolls. They haunted no lupaner or tavern or baker's stall. They were not seen lurking about shady spots at night. They wore no distinguishing costume. It was in broad daylight, at the theater, in the streets, in the Via Sacra, which was the favorite resort of fashionable Rome, that they were to be found, and there they were only to be distinguished from virtuous matrons by the superior elegance of their dress, and the swarm of admirers by whom they were surrounded. Indeed, under the later emperors, the distinction, outward or inward, between these prostitutes and the Roman matrons appears to have been very slight indeed. They were surrounded or followed by slaves of either sex, a favorite waiting-maid being the most usual attendant. Their meaning glances are frequently the subject of caustic allusions in the Roman poets. Many of them were foreigners, and expressed themselves by signs from ignorance of the Latin tongue. These women were usually the mistresses of rich men, though not necessarily faithful to their lovers. We possess no such biographies of them as we have of the Greek hetire, nor is there any reason to suppose that their lives ever formed the theme of serious works, though the Roman erotic library was rich. What little we know of them we glean mostly from the verses of Horace, Tibullus, Ovid, Propertius, Catullus, Martial, and from such works as the Satyricon of Petronius, and the novel of Apuleius and that little is hardly worth the knowing. The first five poets mentioned, Catullus, Horace, Propertius, Ovid, and Tibullus, devoted no small portion of their time and talent to the celebration of their mistresses. But beyond their names, Lydia, Chloe, Lalogy, Lesbia, Cynthia, Delia, Niera, Corinna, etc., we are taught nothing about them but what might have been taken for granted. That they were occasionally beautiful, lascivious, extravagant, often faithless and heartless. From passages in Ovid, and also in one or two of the others, it may be inferred that it was not uncommon for these great prostitutes to have a nominal husband who undertook the duty of negotiating their immoral bargains, leno maritus. The only really useful information we derive from these erotic effusions relates to the poets themselves all the five we have mentioned moved in the best society at rome some of them like Horace, saw their fame culminate during their lifetime others filled important stations under government ovid was intimate with the emperor augustus and his exile is supposed to have been caused by some improper discoveries he made with regard to the emperor's relations with his daughter yet it is quite evident that all these persons habitually lived with prostitutes felt no shame on that account, and recorded unblushingly the charms and exploits of their mistresses in verses intended to be read indiscriminately by the Roman youths. Between Ovid and Marshall the distance is immense. Half a century divided them in point of time, whole ages in tone. During the Augustan era the language of poets, though much freer than would be tolerated to-day, was not invariably coarse. No gross expressions are used by the poets of that day in addressing their mistresses, and even common prostitutes are addressed with epithets which a modern lover might apply to his betrothed. But Marshall knows no decency. It may safely be said that his epigrams ought never again to be translated into a modern tongue. Expressions designating the most loathsome depravities, and which happily have no equivalent, and need none, in our language, abound in his pages. Pictures of the most revolting pruriency succeed each other rapidly. In a word, such language is used and such scenes depicted as would involve the expulsion of their utterer from any house of ill fame in modern times. Yet Marshall enjoyed high favor under government. He was enabled to procure the naturalization of many of his Spanish friends. He possessed a country and a townhouse, both probably gifts from the Emperor. His works, even in his lifetime, were carefully sought after, not only in Rome, but in Gaul, Spain and the other provinces. Upon the character and life of courtesans in his day, he throws but little light. The women whose hideous depravity he celebrates must have been well known at Rome. Their names must have been familiar to the ears of Roman society, but this feature of Roman civilization, the notoriety of prostitutes and of their vile arts, properly belongs to another division of the subject. Roman Society. It was often said by the ancients that the more prostitutes there were, the safer would be virtuous women. Well done, said the moralist to a youth entering a house of ill fame so shalt thou spare matrons and maidens as this idea rests upon a slender substratum of plausibility it may be as well to expose its fallacy which can be done very completely by a glance at roman society under the emperors even allowing for poetical exaggeration it may safely be said that there is no modern society perhaps there has never existed any since the fall of rome to which Juvenal's famous satire on women can be applied. Independently of the unnatural lusts which were so unblushingly avowed, the picture drawn by the Roman surpasses modern credibility. That it was faithful to nature and fact, there is, unhappily, too much reason to believe. The causes must be sought in various directions. Two marked distinctions between modern and ancient society. May at once be noticed in no modern civilized society is it allowable to present immodest images to the eye or to utter immodest words in the ears of females or youth at rome the contrary was the rule the walls of respectable houses were covered with paintings of which one hardly dares in our times to mention the subjects lascivious frescoes and lewd sculptures such as would be seized in any modern country by the police, fill the halls of the most virtuous Roman citizens and nobles. Ingenuity had been taxed to the utmost to reproduce certain indecent objects under new forms. Nor was common indecency adequate to supply the depraved taste of the Romans. Such groups as satires and nymphs, Leda and the swan, Pasiphae and the bull, satires and she-goats, were abundant. Some of them have been found and exhibit a wonderful artistic skill. All of these were daily exposed to the eyes of children and young girls, who, as Propertius says, were not allowed to remain novices in any infamy. Again, though a Horace would use polite expressions in addressing tenderis or lalogy, the Latin tongue was much freer than any modern one. There is not a Latin author of the best age, in whose writings the coarsest words cannot be found. The comedies were frightfully obscene, both in ideas and expressions. A youth or a maiden could not begin to acquire instruction without meeting words of the grossest meaning. The convenient adage, carta non Rubescit was invented to hide the pruriency of authors, and one of the worst puts in the wretched plea that, though his page is lewd his life is pure it is quite certain that whatever might have been the effect on the poet his readers could not but be demoralized by the lewdness of his verses add to these causes of immorality the baths and a fair case in support of Juvenal will be already made out a young roman girl with warm southern blood in her veins who could gaze on the unveiled pictures of the loves of venus read the shameful epigrams of Marshall, or the burning love-songs of Catullus, go to the baths, and see the nudity of scores of men and women, be touched herself by a hundred lewd hands, as well as those of the bathers, who rubbed her dry and netted her limbs. A young girl who could withstand such experiences and remain virtuous would need, indeed, to be a miracle of principle and strength of mind but even then religion and law remained to assail her. She could not walk through the streets of Rome without seeing temples raised to the honor of Venus, that Venus who was the mother of Rome, as the patroness of illicit pleasures. In every field and in many a square, statues of Priapus, whose enormous indecency was his chief characteristic, presented themselves to view often surrounded by pious matrons in quest of favor from the god once a year at the lupercalia she saw young men running naked through the streets armed with thongs with which they struck every woman they saw and she noticed that matrons courted this flagellation as a means of becoming prolific what she may have known of the dionysia or saturnalia the Wild Games in honour of Bacchus, and of those other dissolute festivals known as the Eves of Venus, which were kept in April, it is not easy to say, but there is no reason to believe that these lewd scenes were intended only for the vicious, or that they were kept a secret. When her marriage approached, the remains of her modesty were effectually destroyed. Before marriage she was led to the statue of Mutinus, a nude-sitting figure, and made to sit on his knee. Ut eius pudicitiam prius deus delibaceu This usage was so deeply rooted among the Romans that when Augustus destroyed the temple of Mutinus in the velian war, in consequence of the immoralities to which it gave rise, a dozen others soon rose to take its place. On the marriage night, statuettes of the deities subicus and prema hung over the nuptial bed, ut subacta asponsu Non se cum premitur, and in the morning the jealous husband exacted, by measuring the neck of his bride, proof to his superstitious mind that she had yielded him her virginity. In the older age of the Republic, it was not considered decent for women to recline on couches at table as men did. This, however, soon became quite common. Men and women lay together on the same couch so close that hardly room for eating was left and this was the custom not only with women of loose morals but with the most respectable matrons at the feast of Trimalchio which is the best recital of a roman dinner we have the wife of the host and the wife of Habinus both appeared before the guests Habinus amused them by seizing his host's wife by the feet and throwing her forward so that her dress flew up and exposed her knees And Trimalchio himself did not blush to show his preference for a gitten in the presence of the company, and to throw a cup at his wife's head when her jealousy led her to remonstrate. The voyage of the hero of the Satyricon furnishes other pictures of the intensely depraved feeling which pervaded Roman society. The author does not seem to admit the possibility of virtue's existence. All his men and women are equally vicious and shameless the open spectacle of the most hideous debauchery only provokes a laugh if a man declines to accede to the propositions which the women are the first to make it must be because he is a disciple of the aver and whole cities are depicted as joining in the hue and cry after the lost frater of a noted debauchee the commissationes which cicero enumerates among the symptoms of corruption in his time had become of universal usage it was for them that the cooks of rome exhausted their art in devising the dishes which have puzzled modern gastronomists for them that the rare old wines of italy were stowed away in cellars for them that egyptian and ionian dancing girls stripped themselves or donned the nebula linea No English words can picture the monstrosities which are calmly narrated in the pages of Petronius and Martial. Well, might juvenile cry, vice has culminated. It is perhaps difficult to conceive how it could have been otherwise, considering the example set by the emperors. It requires no small research to discover a single character in the long list that was not stained by the grossest habits. Julius Caesar, the bald adulterer, was commonly said to be husband of all men's wives. Augustus, whose youth had been so dissolute as to suggest a most contemptuous epigram, employed men in his old age to procure matrons and maidens, whom these purveyors of imperial lust examined as though they had been horses at a public sale. The amours of Tiberius in his retreat at Capre cannot be described it will suffice to say there was no invention of infamy which he did not patronize that no young person of any charms was safe from his lust more than one senator felt that safety required he should remove his handsome wife or pretty daughter from rome for tiberius was ever ready to avenge obstacles with death the sad fate of the beautiful melonia was stabbed herself during a lawsuit which the emperor had instituted against her because she refused to comply with his beastly demands, gives a picture of the age. Caligula, who made some changes in the tax levied on prostitutes and established a brothel in the palace, commenced life by debauching his sisters, and ended it by giving grand dinners, during which he would remove from the room any lady he pleased, and after spending a few minutes with her in private, return and give an account of the interview for the amusement of the company. Messalina so far eclipsed claudius in depravity that the profuse debauches of the former appear by contrast almost moderate and virtuous nero surpassed his predecessors in cynic recklessness he was an habitual frequenter of houses of prostitution he dined in public at the great circus among a crowd of prostitutes he founded on the shore of the gulf of naples houses of prostitution and filled them with females whose dissolute habits were their recommendation to his notice the brief sketch of his journeys given by tacitus and the allusions to his minister of pleasures Tigellinus leave no room for doubting that he was a monster of depravity passing over a coarse galba a profligate otho a beastly vitellius a mean vespasian and a dissolute titus the mission revived the age of nero he seduced his brother's daughter and carried her away from her husband, bathed habitually in company with a band of prostitutes, and set an example of hideous vice while enacting severe laws against debauchery. After another interval, Commodus converted the palace into a house of prostitution. He kept in his pay three hundred girls of great beauty, and as many youths, and revived his dull senses by the sight of pleasures he could no longer share. Like Nero, he violated his sisters. Like him, he assumed the dress and functions of a female, and gratified the court with the spectacle of his marriage to one of his freedmen. Finally, Elagabalus, whom the historian could only compare to a wild beast, surpassed even the most audacious infamies of his predecessors. It was his pride to have been able to teach even the most expert courtesans of Rome something more than they knew, his pleasure to wallow among them naked, and to pull down into the sink of bestiality in which he lived the first officers of the empire. When such was the example set by men in high places, there is no need of inquiring further into the condition of the public morals. A censor like Tacitus might indignantly reprove, but a marshal, and he was, no doubt, a better exponent of public and social life than the stern historian, would only laugh and copy the model before him. It may safely be asserted that there does not exist in any modern language a piece of writing which indicates so hopelessly depraved a state of morals as Marshall's epigram on his wife. Secret Diseases at Rome at what period, and where, venereal diseases first made their appearance, is a matter of doubt. It was long the opinion of the faculty that they were of modern origin, and that Europe had derived them from America, where the sailors of Columbus had first contracted them. This opinion does not appear to rest on any solid basis, and is now generally rejected. The fact is that the venereal disease prevailed extensively in Europe in the fifteenth century, but the presumption, from an imposing mass of circumstantial evidence, is that it has afflicted humanity from the beginning of history. Still, it is strange that Greek and Latin authors do not mention it. There is a passage in Juvenal in which allusion is made to a disgusting disease, which appears to bear resemblance to venereal disease. Epigrams of Marshall hint at something of the same kind, celsus describes several diseases of the generative organs but none of these authors ascribe the diseases they mention to venereal intercourse celsus prefaces what he says on the subject of this class of maladies with an apology nothing but a sense of duty has led him to allude to matters so delicate but he feels that he ought not to allow his country to lose the benefit of his experience and he conceives it to be desirable to disseminate among the people some medical principles with regard to a class of diseases which are never revealed to anyone. After this apology, he proceeds to speak of a disease which he calls Inflammatiocolis, which seems to have borne a striking analogy to the modern phimosis. It has been supposed that the elepantiasis, which he describes at length, was also of a syphilitic character and the symptoms detailed by Aretos, who wrote in the latter half of the first century certainly remind the reader of secondary syphilis, but the best opinion of today appears to be that the diseases are distinct and unconnected. Women afflicted with secret diseases were called aucuntai, which explains itself. They pray to Juno fluonia for relief, and use the atticus by way of medicine. The Greek term for this herb being bonbornion, which the Romans converted into bubonium, that word came to be applied to the disease for which it was given, whether in the case of females or males. Modern science has obtained thence the term bubo. The Romans said of a female who communicated a disease to a man, haecte in bubinat. We find, moreover, in the later writers, allusions to the Morbus Campanus, the Clatsomenae, the Rubigo, etc., which were all secret diseases of a type, if not syphilitic, strongly resembling it. It must be admitted, however, that no passage in the ancient writers directly ascribes these diseases to commerce with prostitutes. Roman doctors declined to treat secret diseases. They were called by the generic term Morbus Indecens, and it was considered unbecoming to confess to them or to treat them rich men owned a slave doctor who was in the confidence of the family and to whom such delicate secrets would naturally be confided but the mass of the people were restrained by shame from communicating their misfortunes as was the case among the jews the unhappy patient was driven to seclusion as the only remedy however cruel and senseless this practice may have been as regarded the sufferer it was of service to the people as it prevented in some degree the spread of contagion up to the period of the civil wars and perhaps as late as the christian era the only physicians at rome were drug-sellers enchanters and midwives the standing of a former may be inferred from a passage in Horace, where he classes them with the lowest outcasts of roman society the enchanters sagai made filters to produce or impede the sensual appetite. They were execrated, and even so amorous a poet as Ovid felt bound to warn young girls against the evil effects of the Aphrodisiacs they concocted. Midwives also made filters, and are often confounded with the sagai. The healing science of the three classes must have been small. About the reign of Augustus, Greek physicians began to settle at Rome. They possessed much theory and some practical experience, as the treatise of Celsus shows, and soon became an important class in Roman society. It was not, however, till the reign of Nero, that an office of public physician was created. Under that emperor, a Greek named Andromachus was appointed archiater, or court physician, and archiati popularis were soon afterward appointed for the people. They were allowed to receive money from the rich, but they were bound, in consideration of various privileges bestowed on their office, to treat the poor gratuitously. They were stationed in every city in the empire. Rome had fourteen, besides those attached to the vestals, the gymnasia, and the court. Other large cities had ten, and so on, down to the small towns which had one or two. From the duties and privileges of the Archiati, it would appear they were subject to the Ediles. It may seem almost superfluous to add that no careful medical reader of the history of Rome under the Empire can doubt but the Archiati filled no sinecure, and that a large proportion of the diseases they treated were directly traceable to prostitution. End of section 6